Another one from the book of 1 Peter written to a church in exile. Peter said to those who were actually scattered all over that region, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in the course of time, God himself will raise you up. A phrase from Hannah's prayer or song, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down, he raises up. He sends poverty and he sends wealth. He humbles, he exalts, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ashes. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. I have a friend in Michigan with a plaque on her house that reads, on this site in 1867, nothing much happened. <laughs> that seems like such an appropriate epitaph over so much of our lives, really most of our lives. It's busy once in a while, but most of it is lived in between the busyness and the events, both good and bad at a time when nothing much happened. Well, and that's okay, I suppose, unless you need something to happen, unless you're praying for something to happen, and then nothing much happens, that gets harder. Think about it. Have you ever prayed for something and still don't have it? Have you asked God for a miracle, maybe a job, maybe a healing, Maybe for your children, maybe revival, maybe for the church, and still you have nothing. Now, when nothing much happens, it gets harder, doesn't it? When you think of it, to the church in exile, the real threat is not so much the persecution and the compromise. It might be those long seasons in between when nothing much happens. In the church, we keep praying for something to happen. For us, the Bible has given us a handful of characters that we can look to, study their lives, to learn how did they live when nothing much happened. One of those characters is Hannah. The story is simple enough. She is a woman who cannot have children. She goes to the house of the Lord and prays. The Lord hears that prayer, and suddenly Hannah conceives. But the real story of Hannah is the backstory. It's what comes right before this period when nothing much happened. In the Bible, the story of Hannah follows the period known as the period of the judges. And in the period of the judges, lots was happening, most of it bad. In the days of the judges, in the days when Hannah was alive, Israel had no king, and every person did what was right in their own eyes, or literally translated, whatever seemed right 
to them, this they did. So it was complete moral relativism. Sounds a lot like our country today, does it not? In fact, if you listen closely, you'll hear in the period of the judges a lot of parallels between what was happening in their day and what was happening in ours. In their day, that is the period of the judges, with no king, they had no central government. They had no taxes. They had no constitution or anything that bound the 12 tribes together. They had no joint military projects, no standing army, no court to settle the differences between the tribes. All they had was a collection of 12 tribes, each living in their own territory with their own leader and their own culture. These tribes had almost nothing to do with one another except a couple of times a year when they would worship in Shiloh and maybe when there was war. Otherwise, there were 12 different cultures, 12 different states, each of them territorial. Every now and then, God would raise up a figure whose talent or strength was such that all of the tribes would follow them. Usually, they were a military leader. They had the power to recruit people and mobilize them into something like a militia so Israel could fight her enemies, which were always around her. Whether it was Deborah or Gideon, they possessed a rare vision and sometimes an ability that nobody else had. And because of this, they got quite a following. But they were not political leaders. They had no formal legislative power. They were just dominant figures. During the course of time, a pattern emerged. And it happened again and again, like a cycle. Israel would live in prosperity. They were safe. And then all of a sudden, they would take it for granted. They would start breaking the covenant that Yahweh had made with them years ago. And when they did, they almost always fell apart. Yahweh would send in an invading army who would take them captive. Israel would come to its senses in the form of national repentance. They would call on Yahweh to save them, and then he would raise up one of these leaders. And these leaders would lead the charge in a renewal or a revival for the country. And then after a while, Everything was good again until Israel would feel entitled and start taking it for granted and things would fall apart. This happened again and again, I say. It was a cycle. Only it was more than that. It was a spiral downward. Each time things went around, it got worse and the consequences got more severe. These consequences and these moments were generally occurring in one individual watershed moment when the nation would look at something that happened. And when they saw it, they would, it would somehow collect all of the tension 
and the evil that was in the land and it would localize it around this one person or this one event. And when they saw it, the nation would sort of pause, collect themselves and say, dear God, what has happened to us? And then there would be a reckoning. At first, the cycles were benign. Israel was losing battles to countries you've never heard of, countries they should have smoked. And then a few years later, a few cycles down, they started losing their sons and daughters to the foreign women and men who dragged their sons and daughters into idolatry. Then a few years later, in another round, they started losing their nation's identity. They lost their narrative. They couldn't remember who they were or where they came from. And so you could not distinguish the life of an Israelite from anyone else who was living around them. They might have worshipped a different God, maybe, <laughs> but you couldn't tell it by watching them. About halfway through the book of Judges, where all of this is recorded, things took a serious turn. The problems that were once happening in the nation, problems that the rulers generally saved them from, started happening to the rulers themselves. Take Jephthah, for instance. He's in a battle with the Ammonites. He sends a letter to the king of the Ammonites and says, basically, why don't we sign an agreement? You take the land that your God, Kamosh, has given you, and we'll take the land that Yahweh, our God, has given us. But the king of the Ammonites won't listen. And so Jephthah does what every judge has done. He mounts a militia, and he goes to war. Partway through that war, he makes a random vow to God and says, if you let me win this, the first thing coming out my house when I return, I'll sacrifice to you. The Lord gives him the battle. Jephthah returns home, and what should come out his house but his own daughter singing and playing the tambourine? She is his only child. The reader watches this story and thinks to himself, you're not. He tells his daughter, his only child, to take the next two months to celebrate life with her friends. And then he promptly puts her on an altar and slaughters her in the name of Yahweh. This has been forbidden since the time of Moses. Slaughtering their children is what pagans do, not the people of God, but the leader of the people of God has put to death the innocence of a child. 
Dear God, what has happened? Israel spirals. The problem in the country is now in the leadership. They go into a season of repentance and God raises up another ruler. This one's name is Samson. Have you heard of him? This guy is bigger than life, really. Samson did not recruit an army. He was an army. He has superhuman strength. On one day alone, he takes the jawbone of a donkey and slaughters a thousand enemies on a single day. Then, just because he's good and angry, he rallies up 300 foxes, light their tails on fire, and releases them into the enemy's fields, thus burning down the enemy's crops. Then he still's not done. He goes out to the city gates. One man by himself puts his arms around these two big brass panels and rattles them things until they're loose. And then he just picks them out of the ground. The Bible says posts and all. <laughs> and he loads these two brass panels onto his shoulders. Wait for it. And then climbs a hill carrying these things. Man, he's on your team. Give him the ball. Feed that guy and turn him loose. He will make us great in the eyes of our enemies. They will fear us again like they should. But Samson has a flaw. The only thing stronger than his arms is his lust. So while he is killing Philistine soldiers in the day, he's sleeping with Philistine women at night, multiple women. One night he falls into the arms, literally, of a Philistine, we think, named Delilah. You heard of her? She begs him to tell her the secret of his strength. He won't do it. So the Bible says she starts nagging him. And that works all the time. And so, just before he dozes off, he says to Delilah, the secret of my strength is in my long hair. I have never cut my hair. Only serious readers of the Bible know that the secret of his strength was not, in fact, in his hair. It was in the vow that his mother made not to cut his hair. He dozes off to sleep. The Philistine soldiers come in. They cut his hair. She screams, Samson, wake up. The Philistines are upon you. And the Bible says, when he awoke, he did not know that the spirit had left him while he slept. 
See, it was never his hair at all. It was the spirit of the Lord upon him that left him in the broken vow. That's where he lost his power. The soldiers rush in. They gouge out his eyes. They put him in shackles, which he would have easily broken and did months ago. Now he can do nothing. They throw him into a Philistine prison and they force him to grind like a slave. And Israel said to itself, this is our leader. He's bigger than life. I mean, one of us, this happens to one of us. I get that, not him. Or is this what's happened to us? Israel looks at its leader and they see in his face the state of their nation. It is not Samson. It is we ourselves who are weak and blind and shackled and serving like slaves in the enemy's prison. This is us. This is our nation. This is not just our leader. Dear God, what has happened to us? Are you getting the feel of this? Every time around people, it's another round lower. Towards the end of the book of Judges, things turn one more time as I read it. If you read the last four chapters in the book of Judges, not now, please, you'll notice there is one more turn, this one terminal. This one you will not recover from. The problem that was once in the people and then moved to the leaders finally settles in the priests themselves. Read the last four chapters in the book of Judges and take note of the number of times it is a Levite or a priest, a religious leader that is having the problem. It is no longer the public. It is no longer the leader. It is the people who are supposed to lead the nation back to God. They're the ones who are involved in the most egregious sins. I'll give you one example. There was an old man that lived with his mother. One day he stole a lot of money from her, silver. I mean, thousands of dollars worth of silver. And then on the day he heard his mother cursing whoever stole my money, <laughs> he thinks he better bring it back. So... <laughs> He brings it back and confesses that he's the one that stole it. Only his mother does not rebuke him. She blesses him and then tells him, take the silver, melt it down and make for us an idol so that we can worship Yahweh. Now on top of their political impotence and their moral confusion, Israel is completely lost in her religion. She does not even know who her God is. Her son melts the silver down. They make an idol. They start to worship. And this works nicely for a few weeks. And then like all human worship, it gets boring. About that time, a Levite, a priest, comes wandering into town looking for work. 
He runs into the old man and the old man says, if you come work for me, I'll give you room and board. You can stay at my house and I'll feed you. And this, the old man does. And by the end of the story, one of Israel's priests who once only spoke for God is now paid privately by an old man and his mother to be something like a personal priest. <laughs> and all of Israel looked on and said to themselves, Dear God, now even the physicians themselves are sick. This would have been the end of every other nation. You don't recover from that. You shouldn't. But people, years before all of this happened, God made a promise to the very people who were doing these things. Years ago, God said to this people, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing and I will bless the world through you. God said to these people, I will make you fruitful and I will make nations come from you. Kings and princes will rise from your number. God said to these people, I will be with you and I will never leave you until I have accomplished everything that I promised. So while the nation had quit on its God, God had not quit on the nation. And his eye was roaming this nation for the righteous anywhere. And they were there, but no one knew it. They had never found each other and the people had never found them. So this remnant, this righteous, scattered people were invisible, but they were there. And one of them was Hannah. And when God saw Hannah, he said to himself, here is where it starts. Here's where the future begins. Hannah was the wife of Elkanah, one of two. The other was Penina. Penina was having children all the time. Hannah was barren. And so she was symbolic of the entire nation of Israel. This whole story was never just about Hannah. It was always about the people of God. It was Israel that was barren. Hannah was just the object lesson. The way the Bible tells it, the Lord had closed her womb. 
So every year when they went up to Shiloh to worship, this was not lost on Penina, her rival. She would rub it in. You get the idea that it was the trip to worship that made things worse. That's when it really hurt. And why wouldn't it? How do you worship a God who has closed the womb? What do you say to a God who apparently doesn't listen to you? While your rival provokes, Hannah appears at a time in history when it is dark. There is no king. There is moral relativism, political impotence, moral confusion, spiritual idolatry. One year, she goes up to the house of the Lord with her family. And while they sit down to eat, Hannah's too disturbed. She gets up and she paces back and forth. And while she paces, she starts to pray, not out loud, but she's moving her lips. And the way the Bible puts it is, her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Oh, that's just like Israel. Only the priest noticed. Eli, the priest, this big old guy, he's been priest for decades, for years. He's been a priest so long that he knows all of the rituals, but he has forgotten the magic He's lost the mystery in Israel's religion. The Bible tells us in the next two chapters that Eli is the established priest. He has two sons who are also priests who are stealing money from the temple and they're sleeping with women near the temple. And Eli never has the nerve to call them out. He can't because they're bigger than he is. Eli, the Bible says, is old. He is tired. He is fat. He is cynical. And he is nearly blind. He's sitting on a stool by the post. And when he looks over, he sees Hannah moving back and forth with her lips moving. And it's been so long since Eli has ever seen somebody pray or since he ever prayed himself that he thinks she's talking to herself. He goes up to her and he says, woman, when are you going to stop drinking? Put away your wine. She says, I am not. I am pouring out my soul to the Lord in anguish. I am grieving. Do not mistake me for an evil person. I am not. Oddly enough, Eli never asks her what's wrong. Never offers a word of encouragement or advice. Never prays himself. One wonders if he even knows how but with the wave of his hand, he dismisses her and says, well then, go in peace. May the Lord give you whatever you ask for. 
He has no idea. Hannah leaves quietly. The next morning, she and her husband, Elkanah, return home. (laughs) And it is here where you see a sudden joyous turn. It's just one sentence. This is what it says. In the course of time, Yahweh remembered and Hannah conceived. I got stuck on that phrase. In the course of time. That comes straight from 1 Peter, doesn't it? God will exalt you in the course of time. That means it doesn't happen all at once, but it happens. It means when you're praying, God can hear you even when you're sure he has not. It means that God can set into motion tiny but significant events that will turn the tide of things. It means that things are happening when nothing much is happening. When God sees the lips of a devout person moving in the house, praying to themselves like they did every year, he notices And things start to turn. Hannah gives birth to a child. She names Shemuel. God hears face of God, Samuel. Because at a season in Israel's history when everything was dark and just before the last candle went out, God heard. Somebody saw the face of God. And it was not the figure every Israelite was looking to. The answer was not political. It was not even religious. The answer was a woman who was barren, quietly moving about like she always did. And God heard her. She named him Samuel because she said, I asked for him. You see, when nothing much is happening, we quit asking, don't we? Because we're tired. We start comparing ourselves to everybody else. They got stuff I don't have. They're rising. I'm still sitting here. We get distracted into all sorts of little things, and then those things get into us, and before we know it, we're stuck, and we're just tied up with all of these addictions, trying to numb the pain of a season when nothing is happening. But there is one who asked, and she won't be quiet until God answers. Well, she 
weans the child. She raises the child. She trains the child. And when he's three, she brings him back to the temple. (laughs) Oh, I wish I could see the look on that priest's face. He's still sitting on his stool. And she comes up and says, sir, as surely as you live, I am the woman that was here three years ago. And God has given me what I asked for. And I will give him back to Yahweh for the rest of his life. And she leaves him in the house of the Lord. Who is this boy? (laughs) He is the all-important link between two seasons in Israel's history. The first, the period of the judges when there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then because of Samuel, God anoints a king. In fact, it was Samuel who anointed Israel's most beloved king, David himself. But let the record show, there is no Samuel and there is no link unless there is somebody praying, asking, and they won't be quiet when nothing much is happening. I think this describes our nation, people. I don't want to get too negative here. It feels to me like our nation is cycling. There's always an event, the death of a man in Minnesota with an officer's knee on his neck for nine minutes. The nation looks at that and says, dear God, what has happened to us? It can't get worse. Six months later, the streets erupt in violence and loss. The nation looks again and says, no, there it is. That's the moment. But a few months later, it happens again when people rush into the capital and the nation goes, my goodness, is this ever going to stop? It seems like we're cycling and each event, bad as it is, only leads to another event that is even more disruptive. It seems to me like we are politically impotent, like Samson. We are no longer exceptional. Other nations are no longer afraid of us. We're afraid of them. We fear terrorists as much or more than they do. And it seems to me like Israel, we keep looking for political figures to rise who will make it better again. But people, 
It is the system that creates the figures, so there is no salvation there. The answers are not political. Church, will you listen to this? The answer is not political because that is not our narrative. We slide into moral confusion. We forget things we knew an hour ago, things about sexuality, things about gender, things about marriage, things about civility, things about humanity. We endorse some of us the death of innocence. the unborn. But somewhere in a church is a man or a woman who moves quietly from place to place and their lips are moving but their voice is not heard and they will not stop asking. If you get only one thing out of this message, get this, never underestimate the power of one devoted person who won't stop asking. Never underestimate the power of taking your children to the house of the Lord and giving them back to Yahweh. This morning, however you feel about the country, however you feel about the church, is it old, tired, fat, cynical and blind or is it like Hannah unable to give birth to the world however you feel about the nation and however you feel about the church would you devote yourselves please one more time to asking just keep asking for God to raise up the next generation because it could be that the answer is then. It could be that the answer is not in this generation, but in the one coming. And it can't come unless you are faithful to them today.